0: Welcome to episode 45 of the Build My Alliance podcast. I'm your host Terry, and this week we're going to talk about niching down your business, some strategies for attending trade shows, and building relationships with your overseas suppliers. So, the guest I have this week is Matt Kowalik from the website uh, HiCapin. So, In is a China product and manufacturing business based out in Shenzhen. And so, they recently specialized down, uh, niching down to just men's specialty clothing. So, we'll hear Matt's experiences about uh, kind of changing your target market and turning away business that doesn't fit into the long-term strategy. So uh, he also runs a podcast called the China Opportunity Podcast where he talks about his experiences doing business in China for the past nine years. So definitely check that out too. And before we start, kind of a big announcement. Uh, we're coming up to the one-year mark in a few weeks on this podcast uh, since episode one was launched. Uh, So I just want to take a moment to thank everyone that supported the show, Uh, whether you've been with me since episode one, somewhere along the way. uh, Big thank you. We're consistently in the what's hot sections of itunes now in the us store and we've also made it into the top 20 management and marketing podcast under the subsection of business and so out of the total downloads just to give you guys an idea the top five countries uh, by far the us australia uk canada and russia and then kind of within the us top five cities uh, los angeles new york san francisco chicago and san diego and not that I'm forgetting everyone else. Uh, we know we do have downloads from over 120 countries, so I can't go naming off. Uh, everyone here. So I hope you guys can understand. And so I think I mentioned this before. Uh, there will also be a basic SEO 101 tutorial coming out soon. And one of the biggest frustrations for new store owners that I talk to is having to figure out what all the terms are within the SEO world and how they apply to your online store. Uh, what do they mean? What impact do they have? Uh, oftentimes you'll be wasting weeks, if not months, just trying to figure this stuff out. So this course is designed to kind of give you a basic idea of how everything works so that you can understand, you know, how it impacts your site traffic rankings, you know, finding the right keywords to create content with and ultimately how it ties into the bigger picture of marketing your online store and so the analogy I tell consulting clients is that look when you go to a symphony you have professional musicians that play instruments like the tuba the trombone the clarinet and the piano and also there's a conductor responsible for putting the music together uh, the conductor has to set the tempo uh, shape the sound and create an experience for the audience a great musical experience for the audience so that they go home uh, and they're happy and so you know as the conductor they're probably they probably have a great you know music background they can play multiple instruments, but they're not specialists like the tuba player the piano player or the violinist within the symphony And so as the owner of your online store, you need to be this conductor, right? So think of each instrument within a symphony like a marketing tool that you can use at your disposal whether it's SEO pay-per-click Facebook ads, etc, right Pinterest YouTube all this kind of stuff So while you may not be the specialist to use these tools, you must understand how they work together and their different roles. And so you can create a strong and compelling marketing strategy, kind of like how a conductor delivers a great musical experience to his audience. So within this course, think of it as covering one aspect of a symphony instrument, namely SEO. So if you're interested in hearing more about this course, join the mailing list at BillmyOnlineStore.com. I'd love to hear more. If you have problems currently with SEO, any frustrations you have, you can also let me know via terry at buildmyonlinestore.com. So with that being said, let's get into this week's episode. get you on the show because you talked about kind of how you repositioned your business uh, in the past year or so, so uh, niching down is something we always talk about, you know, kind of in the internet world and kind of how you really need to focus and so, you know, it's a great example to get you on the show and I wanted to see your experiences from uh, niching down your business.
1: Yeah, well um, you know, I mean, we got started doing sourcing and and just kind of our value proposition was hey, we're in China and we know a little bit more about sourcing than you do and that's not a great long-term proposition Position and it led to a lot of kind of random projects, get me some bowling balls or bow ties or whatever. And the th- problem there is you have to relearn all the details of every product, right? The key of sourcing is becoming an expert in knowing the fabrics or the materials or something better than your customers or the suppliers or something like that to actually make sure that you're getting the, the best value for your money. So we found that by accepting these random projects, you know, of course they would be they always take longer than we thought and they always cost us more time and effort and energy than we thought and the profit was always less than we had anticipated. So we decided to, while you know it was tough and at first it's very difficult to to say no to any orders long term, we didn't think that continuing to accept these smaller orders, which actually, you know, you're not building up any expertise in any specific industry or particular products. Um, we figured that it was time for us to focus in on something. And I always remembered um, that you should try to be, try to focus your energy into some type of product or, or service or industry where you can be the best in the world at something. And I knew that with the people that we had working for us and the size of the, the company, You know, we weren't going to be able to outbid or outsource any of these huge, you know, Lee and Fung or some of the really big boys sourcing wise. So we decided to niche down and serve, you know, a bit of more of a boutique market and and a very small slice of that sourcing market. And uh, yeah, so far it's been... You know, we double our business last year and looking to double it again this year. Now we work with, you know, a smaller range of products and we can sell more products to the same customers instead of having to find new customers all the time.
0: Awesome. And so just so everyone knows, Lee and Fung is the Walmart sourcer, right? If I remember right.
1: Uh, They source for, yeah, everybody across all kinds of product lines and all countries, you know, in Asia, they're in Vietnam and Cambodia and Bangladesh and... Everywhere,
0: yeah, they're like this huge listed company in Hong Kong, and like, right, like, I competing against them just is literally impossible, right? If you do everything, right?
1: literally yeah. impossible,
0: yeah. So, so how broad was your client base starting out when you're saying you know you're kind of doing all these random projects? Was there like no overlap at all, or was it just kind of,
1: yeah? Um, I mean, we started off with my kind of background when I got going was in the skateboard, extreme sports, action sports industry um, with actual hard goods like skateboards and bike products and parts for like BMX bikes and things like that and uh, yeah I mean there was little overlap you know we would do random projects where made cell phone cases or we would find you know there's all kinds of different degrees of sourcing right you can do a 100% custom which is the most difficult and then you can also find suppliers who are making a lot of similar products and they already have open product molds and you're basically just buying their shelf product and, and putting your logo on them or something like that so there's a degree of kind of overlap there but one of the benefits of working in, in actually in the skateboarding industry at the beginning was the product that's popular around the world so we end up having all these random customers who are buying skateboards, and other products in Russia, Brazil, South America, all over Europe, all over the States, Canada. So we were just kind of spread out everywhere. Um, and it was kind of interesting because, that, you know, at, over time, then we can kind of feel the pulse of economies around the world, you know, um, the Australian market and New Zealand market gets really hot and they're low quantities, but they're looking for higher um, quality products and some markets are low and and it was this is kind of get very interesting so we kind of would be able to figure out you know who are the best markets for us and who are the best target customers
0: yeah kind of because you're in the front of the supply chain in the manufacturing side so there's like the whole three month cycle before things actually get to the market and then they sell and then you kind of see it ahead of time right
1: right well I mean it depends too you know we have some customers where um, they are not as developed sourcing wise, and they need us to kind of take the full reins um, for them. And uh, you know, of course, it's it's much easier to ship goods on the ocean and have it take 35, 40 days and things. But we've had you know we have rush orders where it's like we've got to throw this on a plane, and even if it costs four times as much to ship it it has to be there immediately um and now our focus is in fashion products and fashion goods services for for men's clothing brands and there are times you know when the the sample is invaluable on friday and for a trade show and by monday it's completely worthless and the same thing with stock you know if you don't hit these big retail shops um timelines then they will you know return the whole order and, and request a refund so we're kind of in that position of having to Deliver on the dates and things that our customers are telling their customers. If they're not, if we're not communicating very clearly with them and, and communicating about the lead times and how long things are going to take, they make commitments that we can't handle. And uh, and when you're in the sourcing game, you're you're always stuck in the middle. It's like a dog getting kicked by both sides.
0: Interesting. So how what was the decision like to
1: choose a men's apparel? It was less of a decision and more of just where we thought we were getting a lot of traction. You know our our. Our biggest, most consistent customers were these guys, and they kind of had a cursory knowledge of sourcing, but a lot of them were not great at it and uh, looking to consolidate. And, and like I said, I mean, a lot of the brands that we work with are design heavy. They're looking to compete with some of the bigger brands. You know, there's a bit of a kickback against some of these larger brands, you know, everybody, people want things things that are a little more unique and, and it's great, it's it's kind of opened up the door for a lot more of these smaller businesses, but they don't have the capacity of a Levi's or Tommy Hilfiger or something like that to kind of be running a lot of product out in advance. and. So our kind of specialty is finding these small suppliers that will work on these small quantities. Yeah, I mean, this was where we, we felt traction. We, we started getting in with these groups of, of buyers and we get a lot of referrals, inter-industry referrals, which I think is pretty rare, but these guys would know each other and it was such a pain point for a lot of them that they were more than happy to recommend us to a buddy even if that buddy was in another brand that was competing with their brand so that's kind of where our growth has been mostly uh, because our marketing is subpar
0: and you notice recently since like i guess 2005 people are willing to pay more for a differentiated product versus like a generic mass walmart produced type of industrial economy thing right
1: exactly right and our kind of uh, that is you know where we make our bread and butter is being, is being able to say, hey, we can make these highly detailed, uh, we can do small runs of highly detailed, high quality products in China, which, you know, if you talk to anybody in the sourcing game and say, hey, that's China's not the right place for that. That's not true. It's just difficult. And so most people don't want to deal with it. But for our customer base, you know, a lot of these guys have tried to source from China on their own. And the fashion industry is so time frame sensitive. If you're not hitting your dates, um, then things just don't work. You know, if you're making a a huge amount of an industrial product, if it's a week late, it doesn't really matter that much. You might have, you know, somebody kicking and screaming, but for fashion, you know, if you don't hit that trade show or you're not hitting your delivery dates to when those need to be in retail to coincide with a marketing campaign, then you're in serious trouble. So we kind of try to avoid calling ourselves sorcerers and and, and call it more kind of like a, a project management or higher value-added project management because we are kind of taking that full responsibility of of managing the suppliers and making sure that they're getting they're able to do exactly what our clients are looking for which is again small runs of highly detailed products at, at high quality. I
0: see so niching down your business has two sides right one you have to like turn down existing clients and the other side you have to build your profile so how did you balance that uh, when you were pivoting?
1: Less about building our profile and more about, um, yeah, kind of turning those clients away. I think that was the most helpful, is kind of these smaller clients who, you know, were keeping the lights on back in the day, but have kind of gotten a less appreciative of, of what we do. You know, there are, you know, people are like, well, who are you competing with? Well, I don't think, you know, in this low value or this low run, high quality game for garments in China, I don't think we're competing with anybody because there's nobody that's <laughs> willing to take this business, which is another reason that it was a good fit for us is there aren't a lot of other people out there competing for the same business. It's not a saturated market. Our kind of exposure comes from cold approaches at trade shows. You know, I would pack up my my goods and take long trips to these trade shows and pack up samples and uh, just talk to people. And face-to-face, face-to-face is, is the easiest way for me to sell. It's the easiest way to kind of get past those trust barriers. And we found it's kind of the only way we're able to communicate our value proposition to people. It just weren't able to get it through the website, which is like I talked about. Earlier, I was just on the phone with our uh, soon-to-be marketing consultant uh, Tim Bob from Foolish Adventure.
0: You stand up pretty easily. Right? I mean, we've met before. You're like six five or six four. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I'm not small, and I do stand out in China. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a good advantage because then you know when you're at trade shows, I'm sure you're like the tallest guy there, and you
1: know. <laughs> yeah, well, usually trade shows, I'm I'm in the states or, or uh, North America or uh, or Europe for the trade shows, but yeah, yeah. At the other trade shows, it was funny. I was telling uh, Jame and I met a customer, uh, a Swedish customer, the uh, earlier this year, and I picked him up at the train station. He's like this, six foot three, two hundred and twenty pounds Swedish guy with a with a long beard on. Uh, and uh, I was <laughs> teasing. I was like, how am I ever gonna find this guy in a train station full? chinese people yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it is kind of funny how you kind of forget about that but yeah you know i've been it's been a long time for me i'm coming up quick on my ninth year in in china you know it's all been kind of part of the the whirlwind experience you know i decided when i got here that uh, was going to be the best place for me that maybe my uh, political science degree wasn't going to take me to the places i wanted to go like you said i think refocusing your business and niching down while it is hard at first and you hear everybody tell you how difficult it's going to be you don't we believe it. And you're like, sure, I can do everything, right? and at least try it and blah, 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 you know, maybe I'm different, but there is value in focusing and trying to find something that you can be better than anybody else at. And it may be a super small niche, but to hone that down and learn how that works and and get good at one thing and then expand from there, I think um, while it takes some discipline, it's it's invaluable. And it it is part of what Dan and Ian at the Lifestyle Business Podcast talk about with their thousand day principle of being able to gut it out through those tough times and Make sure that you are building a business that's going to last, or an asset that's going to last for a long time, as opposed to building yourself a job that you have some kind of special service, but everything kind of relies on you to to come up with the actual deliverables. That that works good for a while, but it's not something one. It's not something you can sell easily, and two, it's um, very risky in the in the fact that in the, you know in the way that you'll get. There's a kind of harmonization of of the business. You know, everybody figures out what the tricks are, and if you're not constantly trying to get good at one thing as opposed to being a generalist, you kind of get run over. Yeah,
0: and so there's also where uh, what you say no to is just as important to what you say yes to, right? Because it kind of distracts you with a lot of things, and when you say no to different things, it allows you to focus on more uh, tangible things you want to go after, too. Right yeah all right and so you brought up uh going to kind of trade show events kind of meeting people uh in person so i want to go into that a little bit so uh, you know when you're approaching clients at kind of these events like what's their mentality when they're going to these things or
1: um well yeah it's tough i mean nobody is looking to get sold to at uh at these trade shows and for the most part you know our our business is kind of a, uh has a pretty long sales cycle so i'm kind of warming people up and trying to get them into, you know, a sales funnel where we can show them samples of our products and, um, get them to kind of let us start sampling their products. But I found that, you know, cold approaches at trade shows as opposed to dropping 10 grand on a booth and hoping that people come to you, going out and trying to have good conversations with people, um, is also very valuable, you know, and and I would just, you know, I would have a suitcase full of samples and pick up a bunch of name cards and, um, try to follow up and get people on the phone and figure out, you know, what's the, what are they, what are they missing that I can help out with? What are their pain points? Are they, you know, paying too much? Are they not sure where to get started? Are they having problems with delivery times? Are they whatever? Um, and, and try to sell them a specific solution to that problem, as opposed to telling them, Hey, I can be your sourcing guy or I can, figure out this, this, and this. Um, You know, we're not a design firm. We're not helping people come up with Adobe Illustrator or Photoshop product files. Um, We take those files and and we find the best suppliers to match up with that project. Um, But yeah, I think that it's important to, to do research. You know, trade shows can be an intimidating thing, and they can be expensive if you're not utilizing them right. So I think that the, the best value of being at those trade shows is being able to meet with people face-to-face. Now, if you're talking about trying to find customers at, at a trade show, it's a very different approach from going to the Canton Fair or Hong Kong exhibitions or something like that. I can talk about that a little bit if you'd like to as well. Yeah, yeah.
0: We'll do that a little bit later.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, my my, my approach to the trade shows is always guerrilla tactics. Um, I have a couple of buddies who... Are getting to that point where they've got enough money to splash out 20, 30 grand and fly a couple people to a trade show to take part in it. We're not quite there yet. Hopefully, maybe next year. But um, yeah, I, I still think that there's value in that guerrilla approach, and um, it's something as an entrepreneur, it's uh, it's good to steal your nerves, you know, to to kind of get over that. It was an important part for me to be able to get comfortable with not having a script and not having you know a segregated meeting or something like that that you just have to go to these trade shows and dig deep and uh, approach people with your products and start discussing how you can help them um and I think for anybody who's serious about being an entrepreneur it is a well it's well worth it as just an experience to to make sure that's something you want to do you know I think a lot of Entrepreneurs, you can hear uh, hear of having trouble with these kind of, uh, of the sales and things like that. I, I definitely had a lot of trouble with that at the beginning, but I just was smart enough to put myself in situations that I couldn't wiggle out of and uh, had to just go forward with.
0: Yeah, I think part of it is just kind of being natural, genuinely curious without going in with a script, right? Yeah, right.
1: and I mean, it was tough for me. I mean, I was painfully shy as a, as a teenager. Um, and, you know, the idea of cold approaching people, even getting people on the phone for the first couple of years while I was in sales and business development was very intimidating to me. And I do kind of credit... Those trade shows, a lot, and and putting yourself in a position where your back's up against the wall, and you have to have something be successful, or or, or you're in trouble. Scary as that sounds, it's uh you 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 find, you know, when you if, if you really want to do these things, you uh, you dig deep and and get it done.
0: Yeah, you need to light the fire under your own ass, right?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's not uh, it's not a fun thing to go through, but we um, did it, you know, and. Um, you're stronger for it
0: yeah exactly and so you're talking about how you would go to these events you don't rent out a booth you kind of take supplies so you're kind of taking like a food truck approach to this thing right where everyone's taking like a restaurant i'm gonna rent a space and to spend all this money on marketing and hope people come to
1: me exactly so for us you know we just didn't have that option. you know dropping 10 grand we need that for employees and you know and, and and expenses here and we couldn't risk having that drop ten thousand dollars on on a booth or something and figure out if it's going to work for us so yeah we just get a suitcase full of samples and, and roll the aisles and look for companies that kind of fit with us and you know it's really tough to make um, those kind of approaches at, at, at trade shows because those brands are there those companies are there looking to sell their goods not to purchase somebody else's services
0: yeah so how do you target people at these events i mean certainly everyone's walking around like how do you find out who you need to talk to as you're there.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, usually the the big wigs are usually at the trade shows for the first day. So if you're waiting till the end of the shows, it's probably not a good idea. Um, I always was trying to make sure that I was talking to, to people and at least trying to see gauge their interest in the first couple of days of the shows, and then uh, I would try to try to get them to offsite meetings go out for coffee or a beer or something and try to get people in a situation where we were able to really have a genuine discussion about their business and their products and whether or not they're interested in our services. You get a lot of resistance no matter what off the bat, but once you can show physical samples and then prove to people that you can do what you say, you said even some people are willing to pay a higher price than they can get those products for because they're focused on growing their business and they don't want to deal with the headache that sourcing can be, and and it and it can be um, a genuine, maybe not just a pain or or a, or a problem, but something that eats up a lot of psychic ram. You know, you only have. The ability to manage so many intangibles in life and and sourcing the products can be something that's difficult and it was difficult for them to do as good a job as we can do here. So we try to make that value added proposition of telling people, hey, you know, actually with you know the amount of money we can probably save you just in your cost of doing business with, with the Chinese suppliers, you are, you know, our, we can build our fee into that and, you know, they get clearer communication and a better product for what they're looking for without having to increase the price. And if we can execute on that, um, that's where we find our best customers.
0: <laughs> awesome, gotcha, gotcha. All right, and so what are some rookie mistakes people make at these events?
1: Um, if you want to talk about going to like a, a sourcing show <clears throat> and looking for a supplier or going to a show and, and exhibiting as a brand.
0: Uh, let's say, let's go looking for a supplier because I think that's what most people that are on for my audience will be interested in. So say you go to like Canton Fair, you know, you're looking for suppliers, you kind of have an idea of what you want to make, like say, I don't know, wooden watches or whatever. You
1: should already have a list narrowed down, right? So at some of these, especially the Canton Fair, at the Canton Fair, there's like, you know, 150,000 businesses exhibiting their products. So you are going to get swamped. I mean, I, I don't know if that's a real number, but I mean, it feels like that. You've got literally three airplane hangers full of, of, of exhibitors. And, you know, the Canton Fair started off it started off big, and it just gets bigger every year. If you're not, if you're not going down and doing research and having your your kind of field of potential suppliers narrowed down, so that you can focus in, spend your time with those guys, um, and then maybe if you have a day the last day you can wander around and see if there's anybody new you haven't seen i would spend your time on that and also build some time on the be on the on the either at the beginning to to research or at the end of your ship of your trade show to have some extra time to actually go and physically visit these manufacturers anybody can say anything they want on their website or in the brochure but their physical location is not going to be, you know, they're not going to be able to put lipstick on that pig. If it's obviously a a poor quality facility, you'll be able to tell that pretty quickly, even if you have... Never seen <laughs> too many factories before.
0: I see. So, so I guess the way is so you look at the Canton Fair directory, and then you find out which suppliers companies are going, and then you kind of do research there, or
1: right. Like, so that you can go there, and they'll have an exhibitor list, and they'll tell you what products they're doing, how many shows they've gone to before, and links to their websites or their uh, trade links on on Alibaba and stuff like that. So you can kind of go and see, and and even do some basic inquiries. You know, have that that templated product email already ready to go and say, hey, this is the product I'm interested in. These are the quantities I think I'm doing. Target price kind of helps. And try to do some of that basic research beforehand and even try to set up some meetings or let them know that you're coming. It just kind of makes it easier for everybody. And they'll be excited, and they'll be inviting you to visit the facility, and you can do the whole tour of the facility thing, and you'll really feel like uh, it's very it's very, um, star ish feeling. You know, there's somebody carrying water for you. You and escorting you to the cars and taking you out to lunch and uh, it's it's a, it's an interesting thing.
0: So what if you're just some small guy that's just getting into it? I mean, would they treat you differently? That you know that you're just getting into it? Or
1: well, they don't know that. Um, I, I definitely advise people against you know inflating your potential business because the truth is eventually going to come out. And if you're kind of not being honest with the quantities that you're going to run, you know, if you're asking for pricing at, at ten thousand pieces and then you're like, all right, well here's my five hundred piece order and I swear 10,000 pieces next year, the Chinese are gonna feel like you scammed them. I think it is difficult to have clear win-wins all the time in China sourcing. You should at least be moving forward as if that was your aim and your goal. Everybody's gonna play their cards tight. To their chest, and and you may or may not get somebody. You know there'll be some degree of honesty, but I still think that you need to be realistic when you're discussing what your business is going to be with them. Because if you do hope to move forward with them, you don't want a supplier who feels like you tried to pull out a cheap price, and now you're like, well, if if the ten thousand price is this, why can't I get it for five hundred or a thousand? They're going to feel jaded, and you don't want to work with them because that's when you get problems with qu- uh, materials being substituted or if you're doing repeat orders, the quality fades and gets, you know, and is not as good as the, the previous orders. Uh, that's where those kind of situations evolve where the supplier's like, all right, well, they, they, they kind of weren't honest with me off the bat, right off the bat, and I'm going to get my money back from them later.
0: So, so I guess it's just good to be honest and say, hey, look, I'm only looking to test on 500. I don't know if I can do 10,000, but if we do, We'll start small. Is that what you're saying?
1: Right. So, like, oh, here's my plan. You know, initial order is gonna be like this. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna be looking for these kinds of numbers, and hopefully, if things get better, it'll look like this in a year. But I'm not ready to commit because otherwise, like you said, you know, you're gonna, like I said, you're gonna get. You can find somebody to give you pricing for that stuff, but in China, you're not gonna be able to write an ironclad contract and say, "Hey, I got them trapped." You know, they agreed to this, so they have to follow through and deliver on this they're just not going to do it if they don't want to do it
0: yeah and cash speaks a lot louder than anything in china too
1: <laughs> right well i mean it, it's it's just kind of set up that way you know i mean uh it's people always talk about it. i've been here a long time so i have a you know i feel like i have a bit of a an understanding of the culture and, and it's just kind of the way it is you know if you look back at china's history if you're the last one to the table at, at dinner time there might not be anything left so the Chinese are sensitive to making sure that they're profiting right off the right off the bat right so you're only you know and, and you're only as good as your last order unless you're Walmart or Nike you know that's where people are judging you as are you a good customer when we first when we first came to China and we were sourcing you know in 2004 or something back in the in the glory days when when things were easy, um, you know, any order you had was going to get you that red carpet treatment because people needed to have their capacity in their factories filled. Even if they were not making great money, they had to not be losing money, which is what you're at with um, having machines just sit there and not be used. Um, but now things have kind of changed, especially since the financial crisis, you know, companies getting Financing isn't as easy as it used to be, and there's kind of a pendulum. You know, the the, the advantage switches back and forth to, to the buyer or the suppliers, and now it's kind of in this weird zone where it's in the middle, and uh, kind of shifts back and forth quicker than it did before. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, for us, Honesty with quantities and things like that is the best policy because if we do, if I'm turning around and promising I can do this for my customer, supplier's like, oh no, I decided I don't want to make that order or my minimum's 10,000 and I'm going to stick to that. Well, if you've been telling them that you're going to do that quantity and then the buyer comes back to you and has a lower quantity and you can't do that. Then uh, you drop the ball and you look like an idiot in front of your customer. So so
0: if you go to these events, you know, you have a product idea. How much of it sketched out do you need it to be? Do you need like a full CAD design
1: or just like something on a piece of paper? Usually a physical sample with a a, a well-done CAD file if it's a plastic product or something that you're going to need molding for or... um, you know a blueprint you need a blueprint for the product that you're going to design you got to be able to kind of clearly communicate what everything is and 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 to the degrees that you want something to come out you know perfectly if you've got flexibility and you want your product and you want it to be something like this you know you can find somebody who's going to come up with some ideas like that but if you don't have that clear perfect blueprint then you're not and you're looking to get exactly what you want it's going to be difficult you know chinese suppliers are very good at emulating products so that's why i always recommend physical samples but if you want it to be perfect you need a physical sample and uh an accurate drawing especially if you're doing something with plastic or metal and you've got a three-dimensional product like that where you need to set up a mold and you really need to have your ducks in a line and you really need to have a good quality cad file
0: and so you know besides being you know consistent with your orders like what else are suppliers looking for in a good customer in china
1: i think there's tremendous value in taking your time and building a relationship with them getting to know the the trying to get to know the people and not in just a superficial way you know americans especially kind of get wrapped up in this business is business and and pleasure is something totally different you know and and for chinese you know it's all part of life and and that everything kind of overlaps whether it's uh, a business lunch kind of going well you want to be you want that guy to see you as, as as a person and not just an order number because if you're just an order number, when those orders stop flowing or there's a problem, you know, you're know you going to be the, the first one to have the rug yanked out of you. But if you're Mr. Lee's uh, kind of buddy and you guys laughed over lunch and you had a couple of beers and you talked about kids and where your kids go to college or something, then you have a bond that's deeper than just uh, a purchase order number. So I always tell people, you know, look, if you're going to, the best investment you can make is taking some time with your trip, and if you find a good supplier, figure out a way to make that guy at least a little bit friendly towards you. You know, um, it's not, not all this gigantic beast and, and state-owned enterprises and things like that. You know, Every, people are people at the end of the day. So investing in that kind of uh, relationship building is, is going to be your most valuable asset, um, and instead of you know just being a peer, you know and, and not not just contacting the suppliers when there's problems if, if every time your supplier gets a phone call from you it's you screaming at him you know you think he's going to want to pick up that phone when it rings and he sees your number i mean you know you need to make it strive to kind of make it at least look like a partnership it could just be a partnership in 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 talk only but um and 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 i think that it, it probably will be but make it at least seem like that um whether it is or not
0: if i'm getting if i'm getting this right so basically you know if you have a product idea you have a design ready i mean it's almost a better investment to just spend like you know 2k to fly to china you know spend a day at the canton fair meet him maybe go to the factory afterwards before you do the whole process because then you kind of front loaded the whole relationship part from later on where your product has bad quality
1: and kind of all these hurdles right right exactly so if you can load that up and and you know whether it's having somebody do that for you, you're doing it by yourself, you know, um, it's, it's valuable to have whoever is going to be that main contact. And again, that's another thing where we tell our customers, uh, what, what our, another value added is, is we can be at that factory tomorrow if there's a problem and we can, you know, do a general relationship, um, development with these suppliers and take them out to lunch occasionally and uh, do whatever and kind of have, um, Develop a consistent relationship and a connection with that supplier and your product. Hopefully, if there are issues that they come, they're they're discussed at the beginning uh, or at the early stages. You know, it's like medical treatment. You know, if you wait until you've got a a, a, a tumor the size of a softball, it's really too late to do anything about it. Um, but if you can do these kind of an annual checkup or whatever that you have a standard kind of contact with it, you can detect those issues a lot earlier and and make them non issues. You know, the biggest problem is when you get to the end of a production and you know, you've know you got finished goods and they're the wrong shade of some color or something like that. Well, the ch- the supplier doesn't want to fix it because it's going to cost them a lot of money to go back and start over at that point. Now, if you had a bit on the floor when they're putting on that first coat of painting and you look at the paint and you say, hey man, that's that's, the, that's not the right shade of blue. You need to fix that. They're much more willing to make an adjustment at that point when it costs them, you know, 200 bucks as opposed to doing a whole new production run which is going to cost them five thousand dollars
0: yeah and so i guess a lot of people who aren't sort having sourced from china they have this kind of black box thing that i guess it's kind of scary to source from china i mean is there anything you can say just to like kind of list the uh cloth over the veil or whatever that phrase is
1: you know i have sometimes you know we get these guys who are like all right well we want to get started with the business with you but you got to sign this nda or, or whatever and anytime somebody asks me to do that i'm like "Ah, oh, man i'm not interested one, you don't really know what you're doing because if you're sourcing at these small quantities and you think somebody's going to respect your NDA, uh, you're kind of barking up the wrong tree business-wise, and maybe you need a you know another MBA lesson or something. But um, the other thing is, is like if it is something that is truly that unique and 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 should require an NDA, it's going to be a long project before you see the fruition of that of that good. So I think a lot of people, and once you go to the a Canton Fair or something you see the range of products. I hate to say it, but most of these Chinese suppliers are a little bit out in front of us idea-wise because they, they're already making all this stuff for Walmart and Best Buy and everything. And all those companies are there and they've been there. Most people's products are not anything brand new. There's a very low risk of, of, of them, you know, uh, a Chinese supplier taking your product to market without you or something like that. If it is sensitive, I, I recommend and people to be careful about flashing around designs. You know, I mean, um, if you look back at kind of the origins of manufacturing in, uh, in England with the cotton gins and cotton mills, walking out with factory plans was a death sentence. And nowadays people just send their designs all over the place to factories and they're like, wait a minute, somebody's copying my design? Uh, And I think that people need to have a better kind of understanding of how business works outside of their home country. Uh, I think Americans are particularly sheltered in this way. Contracts don't work the way they do in America internationally. Most other societies aren't uh, and constantly bogged down with litigation and things like that. And things just happen a lot quicker, which is another thing, too. Like uh, sometimes you hear while in the. Negotiations in China can be slow and tedious. Once a project starts, it's going, and um, you need to be ready and make sure that you can that you can handle that the timelines that you've got out and and when those products are gonna be done and ready to go.
0: Yeah, cause like you can complain about a contract, but someone in China is not gonna care that, what, you're gonna go sue him in China, like where are you gonna find the Chinese lawyer to like do all this stuff, right? I
1: mean. Well, right, and you know, and China has had, you know, a, a full set of, of country laws since 1980. So it's about 35 years, you know, and if you look at the the state, the, you know, uh, the uh, the US legal system was in say, you know, 1805, you weren't you know, getting a cease and desist letter and people are like, oh, geez, well, this piece of paper says I can't make this anymore, so I better stop, you know, and, and China, they're like, well, you can come and try and stop me and we'll see what happens. But, you know, uh, the contract again, and that's where I tell people, you know, don't invest that time and money in your lawyer, invest that time and money in building a strong relationship with a good supplier. That's where it's going to be much more valuable than a contract that they can pay. You're you not going to, maybe it'll happen in, in 30, 40 years, but right now you're not, Unless you're, again, unless you're Walmart or Nike, you're not getting anybody to stop production for most small products.
0: Yeah, exactly. All right, very cool, very cool. Right. And so just to wrap things up, uh, where can we find you online in case anyone's interested in uh, making men's apparel or uh, whatever?
1: Project management website is high highcappin, dot com, And uh, I've got a small podcast. It's in its infancy stage, the COP. You can see us at the China com, And you can email myself or my partner, Jamin at either of those websites, Matt, M-A-T-T, or Jamin, J-A-M-O-N, at uh, High Kappen, or China Opportunity Podcast.
0: Awesome, and let's give a little plug about the China Opportunity Podcast. What do you guys talk about uh, on the show?
1: Basically, it's just us rambling about our experiences in China, um, cultural things of doing, cultural nuances of doing business in China, project management, basic sourcing steps, Holidays, uh, logistics, shipping-wise, everything's kind of about um, right now. is is mostly about um, exporting from China, but hopefully, we're going to transition into more selling into China, which I also think is another huge opportunity. But um, we use our kind of ten years of being in Shenzhen to bring some of the the the, the best sourcers we know on the on the and in Shenzhen to kind of come in and discuss things. Uh, we'll have Ian showing on the podcast from. Uh, Lifestyle Business Podcast next week. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of interesting stuff.
0: Nice, yeah, looking forward to it because you don't really find that many sourcing podcasts now. So that's kind of like a last frontier for people in e-commerce, I think. So There you go. All right, man, very cool. And keep in touch. Cool. Sounds good. Take it easy, Terry. To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store Podcast.